All right. Good morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day to you. Okay, so I wanted to share a couple of things, and the title that I came up with for it is Spouse Hunting, Second Generation, and Semper Reformanda. That's my title. So I've got a, this is topical, and I've got a variety of different references because um, I'm not interested in just propounding my thoughts. I'd rather be propounding some scriptural ideas. That's the goal. So let's start off with Proverbs 23, 26. I do, it's right here. Sounds good. All right, Proverbs 23, 26 says, Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. This is the cry of a godly parent who wants their child to give me your heart, to love what I love, to catch my vision. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. This parent wants to protect their child from falling into sin, from falling away from Yahweh. Give me your heart, my son. So that's one of the biblical principles when I talk about the second generation and Semper Reformanda. One of, so Semper Reformanda meaning always reforming. We want to be always reforming, always growing into a more and more faithful picture of Christ, a more and more faithful understanding and practice of Scripture. We don't just want to get stagnant because we know that none of us is perfect. None of us has arrived in this life. So if we ever get to a point where, okay, I'm done growing, I'm done improving, I'm done conform- being transformed into the image of Christ, well, if we're not dead, then that's a problem. If, we've, if we think we've reached that point before we've been glorified and are in the presence of God— then we're missing something. We're supposed to be continually growing in our walk with the Lord. And so one of our principles, as that happens over the course of generations, we're we're praying for faithful generations where we have parents who are saying, give me your heart, my son, my daughter. Carry on this legacy. Don't be an apostate. Don't leave the faith. Give me your heart. Okay, so that's the principle on one side. On the other side, we have 1 Kings 15, 14. This is more of an example but still a good one. First Kings 15, 14. We're talking about the rule of Asa. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to Yahweh all his days. So Asa's a good king and his heart is devoted to God, but he doesn't take away the high place. What's the clear implication? Clear implication is would have been better if he had. So we have both. We want a generational legacy that's honoring the parents that have come before. Fifth commandment, honor thy father and mother. Proverb we read, give me your heart, my son. We want this generational continuity, but we also want every generation to be tearing down high places. We want every generation to be growing in their walk with Christ. I hope my kids are doing it better than I was, than I am. I hope that their kids are doing it better than they will. 
We want each generation to be growing and building, not maintaining exactly the way it has always been, because that's not the goal. Our traditions, as, as traditions, are not the goal. The kingdom of God, knowing Jesus Christ and being faithful to his word, that's the goal. Insofar as our traditions are tied to that, we want to uphold them. Those are good. You can have good traditions, and you should embrace that as part of honoring your heritage. Right. Thanksgiving Day is a good thing. Don't, don't reject Thanksgiving Day because I'm doing something else because I don't like traditions. Well, that's not a biblical heart of honor for our predecessors. But if, let's say, your family always did Santa Claus at Christmas, maybe that's a tradition you need to rethink. Maybe that's a high place you need to tear down. The point being, we want to hold both these truths in tension. We want generational continuity, but we want generational progress towards Christ. We're looking for an upward trajectory towards Christ-likeness and biblical faithfulness, okay? And again, the, maybe the capstone passage of this idea is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which you know this passage. This is the great Shema. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down when you rise up. Again, we have the parents laboring to pass on the faith to the next generation. That is the biblical pattern. So, what does that look like? And what does it look like when there needs to be changes and reformations and course corrections? How do we hold those truths in tension. This topic came up because this week I listened to a podcast on uh, Ali Beth Stuckey's podcast entitled Relatable is the title of her podcast. And I've only listened to a little bit of it. Been really good what I've heard so far. So a slightly experienced, highly recommended you know, for what that's worth. She interviewed Ginger Duggar Something I don't remember what her married last name is, but she her maiden name is Duggar, one of the Duggar tribe. And it was a very interesting interview. Ginger was talking about a book that she just released called Becoming Free Indeed. And do you uh-huh. know the Duggars? Do you all know the Duggars? Is everybody familiar with the name of the Duggar family? Okay. Duggar family, very, uh, very, relatively famous in American culture, they had a TV show called 19 Kids and Counting. Massive family, 19 kids plus. Um, I, don't, I don't know the exact number. All of whose names start with the letter J. I don't, I don't know why anyone would do that. Um, but they... Reality TV. Right, they had a reality TV show. And they're out and proud Christians. Very, very outspoken lovers of the Lord. And did what they did to proclaim a message of embracing childbirth, loving kids, and obeying Christ. And there's been all sorts of hubbub and controversies and this and that regarding their family. And if you're on the front lines, you're going to get shot at. So I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs. I'm not here to defend the Duggars. I'm not here to attack the Duggars. I'm sure the Duggars have problems. I will say that I've seen a lot of good fruit, and I'm going to hesitate to jump on any bandwagon that says that they're, oh, they're this and such and this and such, because of course that's what the world is going to say about people who are trying to be faithful to Christ. So, um, so I, I default to being supportive of the Duggar family, but not, not worshiping them, not holding them up as, as perfection. 
I'm sure they have their issues. And so that's what makes this so interesting because Ginger is now a second generation Christian coming out of this well-known Christian, homeschooled, conservative, dress-wearing, you know, the whole nine yards family. And she's releasing a book talking about growing up under specifically the influence of Bill Gothard and ATI and her growth from being a young woman who lived in fear and under legalistic bondage to a bunch of rules into a fuller understanding of the gospel and being free in Christ. I do not have time to go through all the stuff covered in that podcast, but I would highly recommend it, largely because we have seen so many apostasies and so many church splits over these kinds of issues. My parents were X. My church was, they were legalists. They were hyper-patriarchalists. They were fill-in-the-blank. They believed that it was a sin to wear pants. They believed it was a sin to listen to rock music. Fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is. And so now church split, or now you have people that are just completely leaving the faith. You've got people like Josh Harris, who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and he is now an apostate. Right, kissing Jesus goodbye. Exactly. He's, he's, he's gone. Um, Rhett and Link. Famous Christian YouTube influencers, now famous agnostic, I don't even know what they are, just left the faith, gone. So we see this sad story over and over and over again. And in contrariety to that was this interview with Ginger Duggar, who is speaking the truth about some errors that she saw and felt in her own heart and in her own walk with Christ. But at the end of it all, and throughout the whole interview is talking from a perspective of knowing Jesus more, knowing scripture more. She is growing. She was very respectful toward her parents. It was not, my parents were, ah, 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 ah. but rather she had a lot of good stories to tell about the things that her parents would say and the things that her parents would do. So it was very respectful. And I, uh, Bethany said that if you, if you follow online or you follow the the news, they'll be like, oh, look, she's wearing pants now, and she's rejected the family now, and they don't talk anymore. I don't know how much of that is true, but I will say I don't default to believing the, the tabloids because, of course, they want to make it look like they just had a major meltdown. Of course, that's what they're going to say. I haven't researched it. I'm just going off of this interview. All I can say is from this interview, that was a refreshing change from the I'm burning it all down on my way out attitude of so many formerly Christian apostates. So this is what it's supposed to look. This is actually a testimony to the Duggar family. The fact that their daughter is coming out saying, hey, I don't agree with what my parents did here. And I I do wear pants now because I don't think the Bible says that I'm not allowed to wear pants. But I love Jesus. And I think my parents were trying and doing a really good job. And I'm thankful for this about them. And I'm thankful for that about them. That's a success. That's not a failure because some tradition got tweaked. If that's a failure, then our understanding of what we're trying to do here is completely wrong. What we're trying to do here is build a legacy of faithfulness to Christ, not build a legacy of faithfulness to a dress code, a a music code, a whatever code. We are passionately anti-relativist, and that's good. We don't believe that truth is relative, that, you know, nothing matters, and you can kind of just make it up as you go, and God doesn't care what music you listen to, and God doesn't care what clothes you wear. We don't believe that. We believe that The world is full of the truth of God. It reflects his nature. You put certain music with a war scene and certain music with a love scene because music matters. You wear certain clothes to church and certain clothes to go work in the field and certain clothes to go on a date with your spouse because clothing matters. 
We're not relativists, but we have to be careful that in our not being relativist, we don't become more strict than the Bible is. To where, well, my ideas of music, I can make an argument for them, and therefore they are objectively true, and therefore everybody else is objectively less than me. They have not attained to my higher knowledge. Okay, that's not a biblical approach. We can all pursue Jesus together, and it can look different, and that's okay. So, there's your second generation simple reformanda. We hope and pray for reformation. Instead of deconstructing away from Christ and Scripture, her word was disentangling, and she said that specifically in response to deconstructing. I'm not deconstructing. I'm disentangling. It's a good foundation. The house is a good one, but there's some stuff on it that needs to get cleaned out. Well, amen. That needs to not stop. May that continue. So listen to that podcast. Really good, really good interview from a couple of weeks ago on the Relatable with Ali Beth Stuckey podcast. She interviews Ginger Duggar. It was good stuff. Okay, so I want to kind of move from that into what Luke mentioned a couple weeks ago. In conclusion to my long game, part three, you mentioned the spouse. And this, this really does tie in. But we were talking about choosing a spouse. And the conversation or the illustration that you brought up was the guy who said, don't marry a spendthrift. Don't marry someone who spends a bunch of money. And my first thought in response to that, honestly, is that that's terrible advice. And here's why. I want to kind of briefly hit on some stuff specifically because we're, we're talk, what are we really talking about? We're talking about relationships in the Christian body. We want to have godly, Christ-focused relationships that are building toward Jesus. So one of the most important arenas in which that is seen is in the search for a spouse, right? Okay, so in looking for a spouse, there are some, there are some important distinctions to be made. I've got three. Okay, number one is besetting sin versus a weakness. There's a difference between a besetting sin and a weakness. Number two is character versus personality. That is a very important distinction between character and personality. Number three, there is the distinction between my list and God's list and what I'm looking for for a spouse. Number one, besetting sin versus a weakness. Okay, besetting sin, if I'm given a scripture reference for that, I'd say Matthew chapter 18. What do we see in Matthew chapter 18? You catch a brother in sin. This is not you catch a brother who spent 20 bucks more than he should have at, or a sister in this case, spent 20 bucks more than she should have at Goodwill last month. Okay, let's talk to the elders. Church discipline time, that's ridiculous, right? We can all see that's not on that level. So a besetting sin is this brother has been in pornography for six months, wasn't even confessing it, got caught by his wife, won't repent to his wife, won't accept any accountability. Okay, now things are ramping up. Now we're going to have to talk about church discipline. Now we're going to, this is getting serious, right? Totally different category than the lady that bought that extra dress that she really didn't have the money for, okay? So there's a besetting sin and then there's a weakness. If you, can, you can have a weakness for, a lady can have a propensity to spend more money than she should and that can be her weakness. That's different than she goes to Vegas every other month and gets into $300,000 worth of gambling debt. That's a huge difference, okay? If you're talking about a young lady who legitimately is addicted to gambling, then I would say, yeah, that, that's a problem and you need to sort that out before pursuing marriage, right? But that's very different than a young lady who likes to buy nice things. I mean, frankly, liking to buy nice things isn't even really a weakness, necessarily. But maybe she has a weakness. Maybe she has a propensity towards that. Okay, well, then be aware of that. 
do you have any weaknesses? I mean, I have weaknesses, right? So, but, so it's, it, it would be hypocritical for me to look at her and say, I saw your goodwill receipt and that's just unacceptable because you've got a goodwill weakness and not acknowledge the fact, you know what, I got, I've got weaknesses too. You know, it's a good thing you didn't see my Cabela's receipt or whatever, you know. So it's hypocritical to have a higher standard for her or him than I have for myself. So you have to distinguish between besetting sin and weakness. If being a spendthrift is a besetting sin on the level of gambling addiction, then yes, amen. That's probably not, that, that needs to be dealt. It's kind of like if you're talking to a young man and does he struggle with lust sometimes? Well, if he's a young man, the answer is yes. Or is he addicted to pornography? Way different. Way different. And in this case, you would need to say, okay, we got to put the brakes on this and we need to deal with this rather than just walking into marriage and bringing that dragon into our bedroom. But on the other side, you need to say, well, I mean, of course you struggle with that. You're a young man. Are you, are you walking in the light? You know, are you being sanctified in the image of Christ? Then we can work with that. Okay. Two, character versus personality. Proverbs 31 and 1 Timothy 3 both are, you've got the requirements for a wife and then the requirements for an elder in the church. Both are what? They're very character focused. They're not personality focused. So Proverbs 31, a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. What is charm? I haven't looked at the Hebrew word, but normally when you use the word charm, you're talking about personality, right? That's likability. She's, she's cute. She's fun. She's adorable. She's beautiful. That all passes away. It's going to, I mean, her personality is not going to necessarily change, but she's not always going to be an 18-year-old physically or energy-wise or whatever. So character, scripturally, is much more important than personality. Not only that, but we do a terrible job of judging people based on their personality because their personality rubs us the wrong way and missing the fact that that's not a character issue. So again, and I'm using this example because it was, it's a really good example, the spendthrifty person that, can't, that could be a sin-weakness issue. It could also just be a personality issue. Some ladies like to buy nice things. And if we're being honest, if you're attracted to that girl, there's a good chance it's because you like the clothes she wears and the makeup and the, the jewelry and so on that she gets because she likes to buy nice things. So the very thing that you're, oh, you're, you're spendthrift, but then you get married and then 10 years down the road, why aren't you as beautiful as you used to be? Because you broke her of that. That was just part of her personality that you married her and then you fixed and now she's not the woman that you married because you liked that about her, but you didn't connect the dots. You see what I'm saying? So some of this is personality stuff that's perfectly fine. Now there are other ladies out there. I mean, my mom loves being very uh, bargain savvy and shopping the deals and clipping the coupons and so on. Is that bad? Of course not. Is it good? Well, I mean, it certainly can be. It can be an application of Proverbs 31. But is it better than this lady over here who likes to buy nice things? Not necessarily. Not unless she's foolish, right? So we have to leave room for personality. It's the same thing with men. As a woman looking for a husband, is he a godly man? Does he have godly character? Is a much more important question than does he check X personality box? that I like. Now, I do believe that attraction should be part of, of finding a spouse, but the point is to distinguish between character issues and personality issues and not look at personality issues and treat those as sin. Just because you're different 
than me or different than what I'm used to. Okay, the last one, my list versus God's list. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. We see in Proverbs, a prudent wife is a gift from the Lord. So if you're looking for a spouse, a wife, or a husband, you should ultimately be seeking, what does God want from me? This often gets misapplied into this magical quest for the one. I must sift through the tea leaves and the entrails of a goat to determine who is the one that God has for me. That's not the point. That's not how it works. But the point is, we're walking humbly with our God, seeking to be led by the Holy Spirit, by wise counselors in our life, by biblical principles. We're not just seeking for, well, this is, this is the ideal that I've created in my head, and the person that meets this, that will truly satisfy me and make me happy. God knows a lot better what you need than you do. God knew a lot better what I needed than I did. Ephesians 4 talks about how God appoints different people to be different parts of the body. If he does that in the church, then why would we not expect him also to do it in the marriage? You need a different part of the body to complete you. You don't need a mirror image of yourself. When I was younger, I I was into blogging, and I did a blog post about what I'm looking for in a wife. And in retrospect... That blog, that series of blog posts was mostly a description of myself. (laughs) I'm just being honest. Now, I I wouldn't have said or even thought that, but just reading through the line items, it's like uh, musically talented and all these different things because, you know, that we would match so well. Yeah, or I would just get a copy of my strengths with nothing to balance out my weaknesses. God provided me with a spouse that was alike in the right ways. She's, she was, perf- was and is perfect for me and in agreement on the foundational issues, but she's also perfect for me in the ways where she's not like me, in the ways where I needed to be balanced, where I didn't have it right. And if, if she had just been a carbon copy of me, that just would have increased my imbalance. Instead, the Lord brought me someone who provided a counterbalance so that we can grow together to be more like Christ. We can sharpen one another and sand each other more into a picture of Jesus. Well, that's going to be hard for you to to perfectly cook up the list of what that's supposed to look like, and that's why you shouldn't try. That's why your goal is to seek Christ, walk humbly with him, and be open to what he is leading you to. Don't be led by your feelings. I'm not denying the importance of attraction, but I am saying that the goal is to seek God's will, to ask him to provide and to be open to what that looks like. And certainly not hypocritical looking at someone else. Oh, they have weaknesses. Oh, I don't like the way they dress or talk or fill in the blank because I am, of course, the image of perfection in all things. and They should measure up to me. No, that's, that's not biblical. That's not a biblical, humble standpoint that says, I want to grow, and I realize that I need to grow, and I want to marry somebody that I can grow with. So don't pick a, and so important, important note here, don't pick a spouse to fix. Pick a spouse that you see God fixing. You can't marry somebody because, you know, once, once I'm done with you, you're going to be a good spouse. <laughs> no, 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 no. You are not the Holy Spirit. If God is working in their heart, then by the time he is done with them, they'll be a good spouse. And you need that too. 
We all need that. We all need the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So if you see God working in their heart, that's what you're looking for. Not, okay, I think I, I can work with this. I can fix this person. I can make them fit my, my, my list. No. No, God is working in them. And God is working in me. And I see him leading us together. So let's do this together and trust God to do the work. And even if you never change, I will love you. I will respect you and trust in God and in his sanctifying work, okay? So, and so to bring it all full circle, a great example of this was Ginger Duggar because on the podcast she was talking about how it was in some part her her husband when she met him, got to know him, and then her dad asked him to watch the ATI videos. And then he's watching the ATI videos thinking, what kind of cult is this girl in? And God used that, used those differences to ultimately help her see a bunch of areas where she was walking in legalism and needed to be set free into the fullness of the gospel of Christ. God uses those differences. God uses those things that we wouldn't necessarily have chosen. So we have to be humble and trust in his leading or else we'll miss the beauty of what he has for us. God-ordained differences are good in a marriage, a family, a church, etc. And then handling those differences biblically is what we will learn to talk about next week.